All right, I have a handout. I'm going to do lots of quotes today from Luther and Calvin, all right? Um, and, uh, and hopefully you'll find some of those helpful, insightful, maybe even give you some uh, other books, other resources for you to read. Um, Dory asked a good question up here just a little while ago. Uh, where were the believers during the Middle Ages? Um, well, they were there. Um, they, Luther and Calvin did not pull their ideas out of thin air. They just didn't start reading their Bibles one day and all of a sudden find out, oh, there's the gospel. No, they're, they're reading people like Augustine. They're reading people like Thomas Aquinas. They're reading other people and the gospel is being proclaimed. And even when the gospel wasn't clearly proclaimed in the church, there are people, you can be assured, there are people who have a true faith and are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. Um, just be reminded of that. Uh, you will find them. So let's start out. I'm going to cover a lot of ground in a short period of time. I probably won't get to all of it, but I've given you a pretty complete set of notes. So if I don't get to all of it, you've got some pretty good resources to help you get there. Um, First thing, you'll notice 500 years ago, I'm right, going to read right off my handout. 500 years ago, the need for reform in the Western medieval church was clear and the time was right. You're going to hear me use this term Western medieval church a number of times. What in the world am I talking about? Well, the Western medieval church. The reason I use that word is because in reality, the Roman Catholic church doesn't exist at this point in time yet. There's the Eastern Church, which split off from Rome and the Western Church in 1054 A.D., and then there's the Western Church. And the Western Church is really the only church there is uh, in the West. There, there's not a, quote, Roman Catholic Church yet. Uh, in my mind, that happens after the Reformation, after Luther, after Calvin. Some, and I think I do have some sympathy with this, take it back to about 1215 with the coming of transubstantiation, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later. But I really don't think there's a Roman Catholic Church at this point in time. So you're going to hear me use the term Western Medieval Church, but what does happen is over time, the Western Medieval Church takes turns into doctrinally and in practice the Roman Catholic Church. So if it's easier for you to think of it that way, go right ahead and think of it that way because that's what it becomes in later times. But not at the Reformation, not until a little bit later. Um, so uh, this Reformation was sparked by the posting of Martin Luther's 95 Theses on the door of the Wittenberg Church on October 31st, 1517. You posted notices on the church door. That's what Luther did. He didn't expect this to have any big controversy associated with it. But within weeks, because of the invention of the printing press, this was printed and distributed throughout much of Europe. And people started to follow what Luther was doing. Shortly thereafter, Ulrich Zwingli starts a reformation in Zurich, Switzerland. Uh, and then a few years later, really, John Calvin is the next generation from Luther and Zwingli. Calvin picks it up. And Calvin provides strong theological foundations. Uh, you might say Luther is a theologian of the moment. As each issue comes forward, Luther addresses these issues. 
But Calvin is more of a theologian who thinks systematically and broadly. And he takes biblical truth and he systematizes it and makes it make sense together. Luther wasn't great at that. Luther was great at addressing specific issues. So, a second paragraph there. Most influential in the changes were Luther and Calvin. The result in teaching, doctrine, and in practice in the church were massive, not only with the purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ recovered, but a commitment to the authority of God's word. Um, The authority of God's word. God's word is really important here. As a matter of fact, Martin Luther doesn't get excommunicated from the Western medieval church in 1521 because of his stand on justification by faith. In fact, the Catholic church, the Western medieval church, doesn't have a position on justification by faith, not that's written down anywhere, so they charge him with with opposing the authority of the Pope. That's what he is challenged with. Because Luther says, and the other reformers say, where is the authority? Is it in the Pope, or is it in God's Word? And Luther said it's in God's Word. Sola Scriptura, in Scripture alone. So this has impact, not just in the church, but in everyday life. Um, I would submit to you it has a huge impact And today, all you have to do is walk into a Roman Catholic cathedral and compare it to walking into your typical Protestant evangelical church. The impacts will be obvious. What's the first thing you're going to notice walking into a Roman Catholic cathedral today versus walking into a Bible-based evangelical Protestant church? The altar. The crucifix. Okay? Statues. Okay? Holy water. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Holy water. Okay? Kneeling bent. I mean, it's candles. I mean, you could just go on and on and on. All right? The differences are huge. Those come from the Reformation. They are fruit of the Reformation. So we're going to talk about worship. We're going to talk about justification. We're going to talk about the sacraments, which we Baptists often call ordinances. They're essentially the same thing. And then we're going to talk about everyday life. And we're going to talk about the impact of the Reformation on the way we think of our government and our governmental rulers, of, of what the Reformers called the civil magistrate, the civil ruler. We're going to talk about the impact on our calling. By that I mean our vocation, our work, the work we do. And we're going to talk about marriage and the impact the Reformation had on marriage. Dramatic impacts on the way the world thinks in every one of these areas. So, worship according to the word of God. Number one, the primary emphasis of the Reformers in the worship service was the teaching and preaching of the Bible as the word of God. This becomes the central element of what they are pushing. It is worship service that only the Word of God prescribes, which are what? Hymns and prayers. Also, the the practice of baptism as well as the Lord's Supper. 
That's what the Word of God talks about in services. This is in contrast to the central element in the Western medieval church at the time and the Roman Catholic church today, which is the sacrifice of the Mass, the re-sacrifice of Christ, which is the central element of the Mass in a Catholic church. It's the contrast between why a pulpit is in the center of a Bible-based Protestant church, and an altar is at the center of a Roman Catholic church today. Those are fruits of the Reformation. Okay? A passage that the, that the Reformers relied upon is the message to Timothy. Paul's instructing Timothy, a young pastor, on what he should do. And he says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Matter of fact, I would suggest to you that 2 Timothy, it, the, the theme of 2 Timothy is Paul's message to Timothy to fan the flame of the gift that's within you. The gift? The preaching of God's Word. That's what Paul is exhorting Timothy to do. Uh, the Word, the focus on the Word. Point two. In accordance with this, another major emphasis of the Reformers was to only worship God according to the ways expressly sanctioned by the Word of God. Simple worship service, hymns, prayers, celebration of Lord's Supper, baptism, reading and teaching of the Bible. None of the extravagant ceremonies that you see in the Western medieval church. None of what I would call, what James White has called, the smells and bells, all right? The smells and bells. Now, the smells and bells are attractive to people. Okay? Elaborate ceremony is attractive to people. And there's something about it that becomes captivating. Okay? Um, but this is a huge contrast between Bible-based Protestant reformer worship, which is simple. It's simple. It's not elaborate. The pastor doesn't dress up in fancy colored vestments and wear fancy hats. It's not that kind of a worship. The reformers called these the traditions of men. Matthew 15.9, Jesus speaking, In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. The reformers said, no, it's the word of God that matters. We're going to do what the Word of God says, and nothing more. We must worship God the way He said. This meant that as a people, that as people placed their confidence in Christ alone for salvation, as the Reformation took hold, the Virgin Mary and the saints soon ceased to have any place as objects of religious devotion, of prayer, or objects of veneration as images or statues as they had in the Western medieval church and as they do in the Roman Catholic Church today. The Reformers, I think, correctly identified this as idolatry. Now, the Western medieval church called it not worship of the saints, and, of the saints but the veneration of them. Okay? Calvin said that was a distinction without a difference. All right? okay? It was the same thing. And if you've been a Roman Catholic, as I was raised a Roman Catholic, you know what I mean. Okay. You pray to them for their help. Because they have special influence with God, so to speak. 
or so they think. Um, but of course, the Reformers, famous verse for anybody that's a converted Roman Catholic, 1 Timothy 2, verses 5 and 6, for there is one God and there is one mediator, one go-between between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. One mediator. Not dozens and dozens and dozens. Just one. Not even two. Okay. Point B. The Reformers also objected to what John Calvin called the New Judaism, consisting of ceremonies, vestments, altars, the sacrifice of the Mass, which hearkened back to the Old Testament and the immense number of ceremonies that God had by His authority abrogated once and for all in Christ. Why had those things been passed away? Because in the Old Testament, these were shadows and types that pointed to the ultimate reality of Christ. But now that Christ had come, they must pass away. The Reformers saw all of this as false worship. Hebrews 10, verses 11 and 12. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Why did Jesus sit down at the right hand of God? What does that symbolize? His work is finished. Okay? A medieval Western church priest never sat down. A Roman Catholic priest today does not sit down. There's a reason Jesus sits down. It's a once-for-all sacrifice. It is done. It is finished. The Reformers taught this clearly. Page 77 in the OBC edition of the London Baptist Confession. We're not going to read it. Paragraphs 1 and 2, particularly germane on these subjects. All right, let's move on to justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. John Calvin, in The Necessity of Reforming the Church, gives us a great description of the Reformed view of the justification that leads to salvation in Jesus Christ. Uh, I've got some long quotes of Calvin here because he does it better than I can. Uh, by the way, I really recommend, if you want to read something very interesting and you like church history, read The Necessity of Reforming the Church. It's available by PTF, PDF file online. Um, I downloaded it last week, and I probably read 95% of it. Here's what Calvin said. The all, but the only man who thus seeks salvation in Christ is the man who is aware of the extent of his power. That is, acknowledges him, acknowledges Christ as the only priest who reconciles us to the Father, and his death as the only sacrifice by which sin is expiated, the divine justice satisfied, and a true and perfect righteousness acquired. Who in fine does not divide the work between himself and Christ, but acknowledges it to be by mere gracious favor that he is justified in the sight of God. What's Calvin drawing the contrast between? Between the works of who versus the works of who? Works of Christ versus the works of men. Okay, absolutely. 
And he's saying only the works of Christ can justify us, not the works of men. Calvin also gives us the error of Rome as it seeks to include in justification not only faith in Christ, but also the works of men. Okay. Uh, the Western medieval church of Luther and Calvin's day did believe that salvation was by grace. Don't ever tell a Roman Catholic they don't believe salvation is by grace. Because they do. But they believe it's by grace plus my works. They require both. Here's what Calvin has to say about that. There is no point which is more keenly contested, none in which our adversaries are more inveterate in their opposition than that of justification. Namely, as to whether we obtain it by faith or by works. On no account will they allow us to give Christ the honor of being called our righteousness unless their works come in at the same time for a share of the merit. Okay? A share of the merit. The dispute is not whether good works ought to be performed by the pious and whether they are accepted by God or rewarded by Him, but whether by their own worth they reconcile us to God, whether we acquire eternal life at their price, whether they are comp compensations which are made to the justice of God so as to take away guilt, and whether they are to be confided in as a ground of some salvation. We condemn the error which enjoins men to have more respect to their own works than to Christ as a means of rendering God's propitious, of meriting his favor and obtaining the inheritance of eternal life. In short, as a means of becoming righteous in his sight. You see, Calvin is saying, I cannot be righteous by my own works and to try to be so is false worship and sin. It is not how we are justified. Well, he's not done. Galatians 2.16 makes this really clear. Uh, the Reformers loved this passage, loved the whole book of Galatians and the book of Romans. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because works of the law, no one will be justified. Can it be more clear? No. Nope. Point three, Roman Catholic theologian Robert Bellarmine. There's a Catholic church down on 120th Pacific, named after Robert Bellarmine. Okay? He battled against the reformers. Okay? Bellarmine called assurance of salvation the most dangerous doctrine of the reformers. But according to Calvin, the error of salvation by faith plus works also led to this error of Rome, this denial of assurance. Calvin said the error on justification leads to the error on assurance, for if our justification is dependent on our works, the next time we fail to keep the law, we necessarily lose our salvation. So in the Western, this is the thing that drove Martin Luther crazy. He never felt like he could do enough works because he'd turn right around and have a sinful thought. Calvin writes this, 
Lastly, there was another most pestilent error which not only accept, occupied the minds of men, but was regarded as one of the principal articles of faith of which it was impious to doubt. That is, that believers ought to be perpetually in suspense and uncertainty as to their interest in the divine favor. In other words, whether God loves them. By this suggestion of the devil, the power of faith was completely extinguished. The benefits of Christ's purchase destroyed and the salvation of men overthrown. Notice what Calvin calls this denial of assurance. A work of who? The devil. Why so, he says, just because the law keeps a man in doubt and does not permit him to entertain a sure and firm confidence, but they, on the other hand, dream of a faith which excluding and repelling man from that confidence which Paul requires throws him back upon conjecture, be to be tossed like a reed shaken by the wind. And it is not surprising that after they had once founded their hope on salvation on the merit of works, they plunged into all this absurdity. It could not but happen that from such a precipice they should have such a fall, for what can man find in his works but materials for doubt and finally for despair? We thus see how error led to error. And he quotes Romans 5, 1 to 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. You see, we have been justified. That's past tense. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice joice in hope of the glory of God. Okay. Uh, Chris's breakout session this morning is the entire 45 minutes just on justification and assurance. Okay. We could go on and on. This is the central doctrine, as Pat explained this morning, that's by which the church stands and falls, according to Luther and Calvin. Uh, page 51 in your confession, particular paragraphs 1 and 3. Um, great sections. Let's move on to the sacraments. The sacraments, the two instituted by Christ instead of the ceremonies of men, the seven instituted by the Western medieval church. John Calvin complained that in the Western medieval church, ceremonies devised by men were placed in the same rank with the mysteries instituted by Christ. And that the Lord's Supper in particular had been transformed into a theatrical exhibition. Gotta love his verbiage. He said such abuse of God's sacrament is intolerable. The first thing we complain of here is that the people are entertained with showy ceremonies while not a word is said of their significance and truth. For there is no use in the sacraments unless the thing which the sign visibly represents is explained in accordance with the Word of God. Uh, to make it worse, in the Western medieval church, I mean, when I was a little kid going to elementary school at a Catholic school, I'd go to church every morning. And you know what language they said the, ma the Mass in? Latin. How many people in Luther's day do you think understood Latin? <laughs> More than now, but not very many. Not very many. Point B, Calvin laments that the simplicity of sacramental doctrine and practice that prevailed in the early church had been lost. Most clearly, again, seen in the Lord's Supper. He said the re-sacrifice of Christ 
Transubstantiation. Now, transubstantiation in the Lord's Supper. Let's talk about that just for a minute. Transubstantiation was a doctrine adopted by the Pope and the medieval Western Church in 1215 A.D. For over a thousand years before this, the church had existed and you could believe various different things about what the Lord's Supper represented. But you knew, no matter what, it was a remembrance of what Christ did on the cross and his resurrection. You knew that. But for over a thousand years, you could believe various things about whether the the bread and the wine were actually the body and blood of Christ, or were they symbolic of it, or was there some spiritual significance, or was it just a remembrance? But in 1215, the Pope decided he wanted everybody to believe the same thing, and so what he said is what's called transubstantiation. And so the, the the Western medieval church adopts the idea that the bread and the wine of communion become, in the Mass, in the church service, the actual body and blood of Jesus. And I mean really, the body and blood of Jesus. Not symbolically, but really. Well, the Reformers universally rejected this idea. They said that is not what the Bible teaches. Calvin said the re-sacrifice of Christ, transubstantiation, and the worship of the consecrated bread and wine, because if these are really the body and blood in Jesus, what should you do? You should fall down and worship, shouldn't you? Absolutely. I mean, if Jesus was here in flesh and blood, we would be falling down and worshiping. Read the book of Revelation. He said it's unbiblical and destroys the real meaning of the sacrament. Quote, While the sacrament ought to have been a means of raising pious minds to heaven, the sacred symbols of the supper were abused to an entirely different purpose, and men contented with gazing upon them and worshiping them never once thought of Christ. Calvin goes on, While the sacrament ought to have been a means of raising pious minds to heaven, the symbols of the supper were abused to an entirely different purpose in men. I just requoted that again, didn't I? Calvin goes on, point three. He said, The work of Christ is destroyed, as can be seen in the idea of the re-sacrifice of Christ, where Christ was sacrificed a thousand times a day, as if he had not done enough in once dying for us. Think about that. Think about that. What does it say about Christ's sacrifice if he must be re-sacrificed thousands of times every day, and day after day after day, it goes on thousands of times. It wasn't sufficient. sufficient. Thank you, Greg. You're shilling for me. It wasn't sufficient. It didn't accomplish what Jesus set out, what God set out for it to do. Point two, the true meaning of the supper is summarized by Calvin simply. We exhort all to come with faith. We preach that the body and blood of Christ are both offered to us by the Lord in the supper and received by us. Nor do we thus teach that the bread and wine are symbols without immediately adding that there is a truth which is conjoined with them and which they represent. They do. They are signs of Jesus Christ. 
They are signs of his death and resurrection. Regardless of specifically which view you hold to, you believe at least that. And the reformers believed at least that. And they were relatively generous with one another in the understanding of those differences. Um, Point three. In addition to objecting to the Lord's Supper in the medieval Western church, the reformers also objected to the introduction of five new sacraments to the two that Christ personally instituted. The two Christ personally instituted, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Protestants generally observe baptism and the Lord's Supper as sacraments or ordinances, whichever you call them. But the reformers rejected the sacraments of penance. That's the sacrament of confession. For those of you who don't know, where you go in the little door and you confess your sins to the priest and he supposedly forgives your sins. The sacrament of confirmation, anointing of the sick, marriage and holy orders as the ceremonies and traditions of men. The reformers also rejected the sacraments as means of acquiring merit before God in order to achieve the righteousness that leads to eternal life. They rejected the idea that the sacraments are good works that infuse righteousness into the Christian and forgive sins. Okay? Here's, here's the difference. Real quickly, here's the difference between salvation in Christ according to the Bible, is we believe Christ imputes, or, let's use a little different word, credits righteousness to us. So we are declared righteous. We really are not righteous. We are still sinners. But we have the righteousness of Christ credited to our account. So we are declared righteous before God. In the Western medieval church, in the modern Catholic church, this word gets wiped out and they teach that Christ must infuse righteousness into us. And the way Christ infuses righteousness into us, because if we are infused with righteousness now, what happens? I become righteous, okay? I really become righteous. And I become righteous by participating in the sacraments where I receive the grace of Jesus Christ. So by the work of the sacraments, I get merit that I can then hold up to God and say, see God, I am righteous. These are my good works. That's why primarily Roman Catholics today go to confession to the sacrament of penance to have their sins forgiven. So that they're righteous before God for at least a little while until they walk out and the car pulls in front of them and they have this sinful thought about that evil person driving the car. Or their wife says something. I mean, this is my experience. This is Luther's experience. You go to confession and shortly after you leave, you're right back in the same boat again. You're a sinner all over again. But you're righteous for a little while. That's why the sacrament of last rites is so important to Catholics. 
Because on my deathbed, I want to have my sins forgiven before I can commit another sin which will condemn me to hell or to purgatory, which we're not even going to get to today, but there's nothing in the Bible about purgatory. Absolutely nothing. Okay. 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 26, passage the Reformers relied upon, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Key elements of the Lord's Supper is remembering him and his death and proclaiming it until he comes. Um, It's what the Reformers believed. Um, Your London Baptist Confession is very good on this, chapters 28, 29, and 30. I'll direct you there. All right, let's move on. Let's talk about everyday life, civil government. Ministers of God to rule civic and temporal affairs. The affairs of this world. That's what civil magistrates are given to. They are actually called, in Romans 1, ministers of God. It's the same word that's talked about of pastors and elders in the Bible. Ministers of God. The Western medieval church, the Catholic church, saw the civil authorities as being under the authority of the Pope. In other words, if the Pope tells you to do something, you ought to do it. You're required to do it. Or it is sin for you as a civil magistrate, as a king. The civil magistrate was to carry out the desires and edicts of the Pope in the governing of the civil and temporal world. The church was over the civil authorities. Well, along comes the Reformation. And spiritual and religious authorities were both were, were seen as having a sphere of responsibility. So you now have spheres of responsibility, according to the reformers. You have the spiritual sphere, the spiritual fear, sphere, which is to be uh, led by the church, and then you have the civil and temporal sphere. The, 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 the secular side is the way we would think of it. And that is to be ruled by who? By the civil magistrate. By the world's rulers. By the ministers of God. They operate side by side in the reformer's view with different responsibilities. They inform each other, but they don't have authority over each other. This sets the stage for what ultimately becomes Churches having different, having freedom from their governing authorities, like we have in the United States today. Like it exists in almost everywhere in the world. Where the church doesn't report to the president or the prime minister, and the prime minister or the president doesn't rule over the church. Um, this is a fruit of the Reformation. Um, Point A, under two, the authority of the civil magistrate was seen by the reformers as established by the God. The office carried divine sanction. 
and carries significant and carries significant power in the sphere of civil and temporal temporal affairs. Romans 13 is the basic text. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. For because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Do you view your civil authorities as ministers of God? Well, then you need to be convicted, because that's what they are, appointed by God. The reformers, viewed the, the reformers viewed the Christian life as lived in the earthly political sphere, not as a repudiation of the society at large. We are under the authority of our civil, civil rulers. They are placed there by God. Like them personally or not. As Christians, I mean, when Paul wrote this in Romans 13, do you know who the emperor of Rome was? Nero one of the most ruthless anti-Christian emperors in all of Rome. So Paul knew what he was talking about. Yet Christianity does make a difference because the Christian's obedience to the state is not limitless, but is confined within the sphere of the civil magistrate's own sphere of authority over the secular kingdom he rules. In his book, Temporal Authority, Luther offers a fascinating example. I love this. If your prince or temporal ruler commands you to side with the Pope, to believe this and so, or to get rid of certain books, you should say, Gracious sir, I owe you obedience in body and property. Command me within the limits of your authority on earth, and I will obey. But if you command me to believe, or to get rid of certain books, I will not obey. For then you are a tyrant, and overreach yourself, commanding where you have neither the right nor the authority. In other words, the civil magistrate doesn't have a right to tell me what to believe. He doesn't have a right to tell me what books to read. He does have a right to tax me. He does have a right to tell me what to do. He does have a right to throw me in jail. But he doesn't have the right to tell me in the area of spiritual things what I must believe and do. Then Luther calls him a tyrant. Calvin agrees with this. Matter of fact, in the American Revolution, the Declaration of Independence, if you read it, they call King George a tyrant a number of times to justify declaring independence from Great Britain. You can decide whether he was really a tyrant or not. But that's how they justified it. Many of them were Calvinists. Let me go on. Should he seize your property on account of this and punish such disobedience, then blessed are you. Thank God that you are worthy to suffer for the sake of the divine word. Let him rage, fool that he is. He will meet his judge. For I tell you, if you fail to withstand him, if you give in to him and let him take away your faith and your books, you have truly denied God. So the civil ruler rules in his sphere. The church rules in its sphere. This is the fruit of the Reformation. It's what the reformers said. Luther teaches here that Christians can refuse to comply with the command of the civil ruler if the command falls outside his sphere of authority or is opposed to the command of God. We must obey God rather than men. But notice, notice, Luther does not see the actions of the ruler 
as overstepping his bounds of authority or destroying his legitimacy. Rather, he sees the earthly sufferings of the Christian as following in the sufferings of Christ and in a sign of God's work in his life and should cause him to look at the ultimate blessings to come. Interesting, and I think proper way to think about it. Lennon Baptist Confession talks about this, chapter 24. The Christian's calling. Um, the Reformers called it a calling. We often think of a calling as something God calls pastors to do, or missionaries to the field, right? The Reformers called their vocation and work a calling. Not just because they were priests, but they're talking about everybody and all the jobs that they do. Western medieval church saw the work of priests, bishops, monks, sisters as spiritual work and thus the highest form of service to God. If you wanted to really serve God, you'd become a priest or a monk or join the convent. That is the high. I mean, if you're, if you've been around Catholic families very much and one of their sons is a priest, man, that is a big deal. That's a big deal. Because he's better than everybody else, alright? He's better spiritually. The reformer's view of work, or more properly of calling, does not see a division between spiritual work and secular or temporal work. Both are equal in God's eyes as long as their work contributes to the well-being of society. As Luther states, I love this quote, that's why I put it in here, Therefore, just as those who are now called spiritual, that is, priests, bishops, or popes, are neither different from other Christians nor superior to them, except that they are charged with the administration of the word of God and the sacraments, which is their work and office, so it is with the temporal authorities. They bear the sword and rod in their hand to punish the wicked and protect the good. A cobbler, a shoemaker, a smith, a peasant, each has the work and office of his trade, and yet they are all alike consecrated priests and bishops. In other words, they're equal with those priests and the bishops of the world, they're, they're all the same. Further, everyone must benefit and serve every other by means of his own work or office, so that in this way, many kinds of work may be done for the bodily and spiritual welfare of the community, just as all the members of the body serve one another. Did you know the reformers said the work you do, as long as you do it for the well-being and good of society, is just as spiritual as the work anybody else does. That's a fruit of the Reformation. The reformers distinguish professions from the people who hold them. In other words, a wicked man may have a legitimate profession and pursue it in a wicked way. The office of judge or the position of soldier are legitimate professions that can be held by corrupt men who use their positions to do evil. The reformers did not, however, teach all vocations are legitimate because some fail to advance the well-being of society through love of neighbor. That's what it's grounded in. It's grounded in love of neighbor. For instance, a prostitute or a freelance hitman does not promote the civic good. Not legitimate professions, according to Luther. This has great significance for the Christian life. Only this sort of thinking about work and calling can infuse dignity into the most humble and medial, menial of human tasks. I don't care if you're a toilet cleaner or a, janit or a janitor or what you do. 
if you do it for the glory of God, it is as spiritual as any other work anybody else can do. Done in faith and for the glory of God, every calling can be something beautiful and spiritual. That's new with the Reformation. That's new. And keep in mind, most people during Reformation times, if you were born a peasant, you lived a peasant your whole life. If your father was a cobbler, a shoemaker, you learned to be a cobbler and a shoemaker, and you were a cobbler and a shoemaker your whole life. It didn't matter. What, you, what your father did, that's what you did. So this is really relevant to the people of the Reformation. How can I as a peasant be pleasing to God if I don't have the learning and education to become a priest or a monk? Okay, lastly, I've got to finish up. Marriage. Marriage predates the fall and is part of the good structure of God's creation itself. The Western medieval church saw a celibate life of self-denial to be the most spiritual life and most pleasing to God of any earthly life that could be lived. If you wanted to be spiritual, you had to get rid of that sex thing and be celibate. Okay? That's still the position of the Roman Catholic Church. The ascetic life of self-denial was viewed as the ideal life on earth. Marriage and family life were a less than ideal Christian life. The reformers brought to the church and to society at large a totally different and diametrically opposed perspective. They see marriage as the first human institution created by God, which was established before the fall and is part of the good structure of God's creation in the garden. Genesis 2.18 Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. The implication is this helper is a good thing. Point two, the reformers believed that sex was originally intended for procreation, but also designed to be a joyous and pleasurable procreation that is glorious and God-honoring. For them, the civil ruler was made necessary because of the fall, but marriage and family was God's intention for humanity before sin ever entered the scene. As a monk and a priest, Luther did not consider marriage as an option for him but later came to regard the restoration of marriage to a place of honor in the Reformation as a sign of the great advance of God's kingdom, and Luther thought it was one of the greatest things that came out of the Reformation. In a sermon he gave in 1519, while he's still a celibate monk, he isn't excommunicated till 1521, he said this of married love in comparison to other kinds of love. But over and above all these is married love, that is, a bride's love which glows like a fire and desires nothing but the husband. She says, it is you I want, not what is yours. I want neither your silver nor your gold. I want neither. I want only you. I want you and your entirety or not at all. Of other kinds of love, seek something other than the loved one. This kind wants only to have the beloved's own self completely pretty good for a celibate monk i think yeah Yeah. point c by the time luther himself was married he was well into middle age and in a comment in table talk he wrote this of his beloved wife katie and their marriage um i don't know how many of you know the story um there was a convent and uh about 
20, 25 nuns, and Luther took it upon himself to marry all the nuns off to the priests that were coming to believe in justification by faith alone. And, you know, he married them all off, and he married, and he finally got down to one. And this one, Katie, kept refusing everybody Luther would bring forward. And she finally says to him, why don't you marry me? Well, he thought on that for a while. And he did. And he did. Later in life, he writes this. I wouldn't give up my Katie for France or for Venice. First, because God gave her to me and gave me to her. Second, because I have often observed that other women have more shortcomings than my Katie, although she too has some shortcomings. <laughs> they are outweighed by many great virtues. And third, because she keeps faith in marriage, that is, fidelity and respect. A wife ought to think the same way about her husband. There's all kinds of very wonderful, touching quotes about Luther's marriage to Katie. He writes and talks about it. Um, it seems they had lots of children. It seems they had a wonderful marriage. Um, they did lose an infant daughter. Um, but uh, it was obvious that for Luther, marriage was a blessing for him. Um, this view of marriage is a fruit of the Reformation. Um, conclusion. The fruit of the Reformation for us today is that the church has at her disposal the most powerful weapons of all. The word of God, the gospel, the sacraments and ordinances to proclaim the gospel and grow in our love of Christ. We should avail ourselves of these weapons in the spiritual realm, for by them we fulfill the purpose of the church to bring glory to God. These also are sufficient to guide us as we endeavor to glorify God in our work, our calling, in our marriage and family relationships, in our relationships with the civil government. The fruit of the Reformation just as clearly teaches us that the church should leave the sword in the civil and political sphere and the instruments and structures of power that go with it, which are designed by God to promote good and punish evil in society to the God-ordained ministers, to the civil magistrates and rulers who are ministers of God as well. Let us as the church not confuse what our role is in this world. It is not to change the society. It is to proclaim Jesus Christ and one by one transform the people of this world. Um, Jesus Christ will come and he will change this society and this world. Um, our job is to proclaim him and the glorious gospel that's been given to us.